As you can tell from Oscar's correspondence to Donahue, he was frantic to get a start on preparing for his appeal. That meant reading all of the reports, understanding the forensic evidence, seeing the scene photos, and studying the grand jury and trial transcript for appealable errors. He begged Donahue to help him. Instead, Donahue seemed to stall, delay, and ignore Oscar's requests. Oscar to Donahue, February 20th, 1977. I hope you answer these questions soon. I have 30 days from the 15th of February before my opening brief has to be filed. February 21. I'm writing this letter tonight to see if you can find any error that might help me get a new trial when you go through the reports and transcripts. If so, would you let me know what you found as soon as you received this? Can you tell me what you objected to at trial? I can remember part, but if you'll let me know all you can. My opening brief has to be filed by 30 days from February 15th, and that's not long. So, please help if you will. They've tried to get me to go to the hospital, but I've just got too much to do. For I do want to prove that I am innocent before I die. Donahue, February 23rd. I was advised yesterday by the Tulare County Appeals Clerk that your transcript was sent to your appointed attorney, Mr. Paul Halvanick, Assistant State Public Defender, Sacramento, California, on February 17, 1977. They could not send it to anyone until they knew for sure who was going to be your attorney, yourself or someone else. So Oscar had finally been assigned an attorney, and the State Public Defender's Office had 30 days to review the entire case write and submit a brief that was Oscar's one and only chance to argue all of the legal errors in the investigation, grand jury, and trial. Neither Oscar nor his attorneys had read the trial transcript, and Donahue completely ignored the request for his list of appealable errors and issues preserved through objections. They also had to go into the appeal without any notes or reports from Morton and Grubb. In the end, only two issues were appealed the death sentence, and the Miranda violations on the night of Oscar's arrest. We looked at that and just saw total legal malpractice. As terrible as Donahue's defense was, he did preserve a couple of really critical issues for appeal. Perhaps the strongest and most important was his objection to Morton's testimony about the tire and heel print evidence as being non-expert, unscientific, and prejudicial. That objection, coupled with a suppressed expert opinion from the San Diego lab that the heel print was not a match to Oscar's boot, and the disclosure after the trial that the photos Morton relied upon for his opinion had been taken with a malfunctioning camera that distorted the images, should have easily been enough to overturn the conviction and get Oscar a new trial. Oscar's appeal went through two other attorneys in the State Public Defender's Office between February and May of 1977. He ended up with Ted Isles, who told Oscar that the issue wasn't appealable. Isles was 100% wrong, and his decision blocked Oscar from later raising the foot and tire prints on appeal. The story of the San Diego lab report is off the charts crazy, and way bigger than we've covered in past episodes. Morton had been given eight photos, printed by TCSO Johnson, that showed footprints at Neal Ranch near Donna's body. 
They covered evidence stands number 34 to 40 at that scene. Morton was also given three pair of cowboy boots collected from the Clifton home. Two of them were quickly eliminated as matching any of the prints, but Morton believed that the third pair could be a match to the partial heel print, which was photographed at evidence stand number 35. Morton tried to match the photo to the boot and to a cast of the boot heel he made, but was unable to make it work. He called ADA Blyer and conveyed that information to him on March 12, 1976. Apparently, Blyer told him to keep trying. On March 26, Morton called James Harris, Associate Director of the Visibility Lab at the University of San Diego. He also called the Naval Electronics Lab and finally Richard Blackwell at the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech. He billed this work as, quote, Locating Image Enhancement Specialist. Morton then called Harris back twice and made arrangements to have him work on the case. On March 28, Morton called Blyer and received authorization to hire Harris. On the 29th, TCSO Hensley gave Johnson the original 4x5 negatives for the eight images taken at evidence stands 34 to 40. Johnson then flew with the negatives to San Diego met Harris at the airport, gave him the negatives, and then flew back to Visalia. On April 5th, Morton called Sheriff Wiley, and they spoke for 15 minutes about evidence in the case. The next day, Morton called Harris and spoke to him twice for about 40 minutes, and then called ADA Blyer. On April 8th, Morton had two more phone conversations with Harris, and another on April 12th. On April 6th and April 13th, Morton sent express packages via airplane to Harris that contained photos of the boot from the Clifton house and the mold of the heel Morton had made in his lab. On April 15th, Morton called and discussed Harris's findings. On April 17th, he flew round trip from Oakland to San Diego to work on the image enhancement to match the boot with Harris. The total cost of the trip was $700, including rental car and lunch. On June 8th, Harris sent Morton an invoice for two days of work on the photos, $400 per day, which Morton paid on July 12th, with a note that said, quote, It is unfortunate that we were not more successful with the limited work which was performed. End quote. Limited? What more could they have done? Shot it to the moon and back? One thing is clear. Harris never submitted a report of his findings to the defense. We know that Donahue was told about Harris and exactly what his work was supposed to show, that one or more of the shoe prints found near the body at evidence stands 34 to 40 matched the boots from Oscar's house. That information to Donahue was contained in the summary of Parker's meeting with Morton dated March 23, 1976. Donahue never received anything else in writing about it, but someone seems to have told him that Harris could not find a match. At least that's what he told Oscar in 1977. Oscar's questions were, why wasn't that exculpatory report given to the defense, and why wasn't Harris called to dispute Morton's bogus print testimony? Obviously, Donahue messed up. The DA spent thousands of dollars to prove that it was not Oscar's boot heel found near Donna's body, and then Morton told the jury that it could be, even if he wasn't sure if it was a shoe or a boot print. That was a lie. 
Morton hired an expert. He worked with the expert, received the expert's opinion that it was not a match, hid it, and then pretended to the jury that he didn't know any of that. This wasn't an isolated incident, but rather a pattern in the case. We haven't talked a ton about the leaf that TCSO Hensley and Johnson claimed that they found stuck in the passenger side mirror of Oscar's truck at the impound yard. This leaf, along with leaves collected at Neal Ranch, were sent to a research botanist at Berkeley named John Strother. On April 6, 1976, Strother wrote a report to Morton with his findings, which were that they all appeared to be citrus leaves, that he could not say which kind of citrus, grapefruit, lemon, or orange, let alone match them as coming from the same trees. So, D.A. Powell gave this report to Donahue, and Strother testified for the defense that the leaf from Oscar's truck was not evidence of his presence at Neal Ranch, right? Of course not. Powell hid the entire thing, and instead put a random local on the stand to say that the leaf was some type of citrus, and Powell used that to start calling it an orange leaf for the rest of the trial. Donahue never objected, asked for a mistrial, or even corrected it in front of the jury at closing. When Oscar finally read the trial transcript at the end of 1978, he noticed that Morton let the name Strother slip, and Powell talked over him. The defense had spent an outsized portion of their case trying to explain the supposed orange leaf when the exculpatory expert's report should have kept it out of the trial altogether. This brings us back to Oscar's questions about how the white paint transfer on Donna's bike was first discovered. The reason Donahue didn't answer the question was because the answer was totally undocumented by TCSO, but was contained in Morton's notes turned over to the defense in 2003. On January 16, 1976, Morton traveled from Oakland to Visalia to examine Donna's bike. We have no idea why Hensley didn't deliver the bike with the other evidence on the 6th, but he didn't. When Morton examined the bike, he noted, Left fork, front wheel, white paint transfer up 15 to 16 and a half inches, and a smaller one at around 17 and a quarter. Pale blue transfer on steering column looks like it is covered with dust or dirt. Small quantity of white material in right pedal cap. Dirt embedded in left pedal. Possible white transfer to edge of button on left side of handlebar. So, the main area of white paint transfer was about one and a half inches, measuring 15 inches up from the hub. Morton's notes indicate that he then went to Jackson's towing, examined Oscar's truck, and removed a paint sample from an area that appeared to have, quote, minor nicks and scratches on the paint. Although it's not documented on that page, it appears that Morton also took a sample from the TCSO vehicle that Johnson used to transport the bike to evidence. On January 27th, Morton ran tests on all three paint samples and eliminated the paint from Oscar's truck he found the TCSO vehicle to be, quote, similar. That seemed to be the end of it, at least until Morton gave the bad news to Blyer on March 12th, the same day he told Blyer that he couldn't match Oscar's boots to the print at Neal Ranch. Just like the panic over the boot print, Morton sprang into action and called Johnson to request more paint samples from Oscar's truck. 
Clearly, Blyer had ordered him to keep testing until he could testify that he found a match to the paint on Donna's bike. Johnson took 16 samples from various areas on Oscar's truck and express mailed them to Morton. It didn't help. On March 28th, Morton's notes showed that chemically, none of those samples could possibly be the paint on Donna's bike. So, there was fresh white paint on Donna's bike that did not come from Oscar's truck, which pointed directly to an unidentified suspect vehicle that either hit the bike or was used to transport it to List. Did Morton or Powell inform Donahue of this exculpatory evidence? No. How did Oscar figure it out after the trial? He was finally able to read Johnson's report about taking the samples and couldn't believe Donahue had never pointed out to the jury that someone else's paint may have been on Donna's bike. As we've pointed out before, based on Bird's assurances, Powell and Blyer had expected Morton to hand them a huge pile of physical evidence that connected Oscar to Donna and the scenes. None of that happened. After Morton and Grubb finished all of their work in March 1976, they told Blyer that they found nothing. No blood, no fingerprints, no semen, no matching hairs or fibers, no leaves or soil, and no tire or footprint matches. It was all a big zero. According to a phone message for Morton taken by his assistant on March 22, 1976, Blyer was not taking the news well. Regarding Clifton case, needs report immediately. Evidence is going to the defense because of delays. Guy is very upset. Blyer obviously was worried that the evidence was about to be turned over to the defense for their own forensic testing. It's just bizarre and inexplicable that Donahue didn't have that done. At this juncture, you can really feel the pressure on Morton to give Blyer what he wants. Something, anything that connected Oscar to the homicide. Morton worked for a private lab, and they only stayed in business as long as they gave their clients the results they wanted. It goes without saying that this is not how forensic analysis is supposed to work. But in reality, DAs often buy their expert opinions. This pressure led to the frantic bike paint and San Diego trips, and later, even more desperate last-minute attempts to find something, anything. On June 9, 1976, at 9.20 a.m., TCSO Chamberlain and Detective Chambers went to Jackson's garage, the impound yard where Oscar's truck had been since his arrest, and collected both sets of seat belts and the bench seat. They'd called ahead, and a Jackson's employee had removed them. They loaded the seat and seat belts into a TCSO vehicle and drove back to headquarters. When they arrived there, Chamberlain claimed that he saw a blonde hair clinging to a passenger side seat belt. The hair was put in an evidence envelope and given to TCSO Hensley at 10.50. At 2.15, Chamberlain arrived in Los Angeles at the L.A. County Sheriff's Crime Lab with the seat and seat belts. Criminalists at the lab examined the items for evidence of blood and found nothing. Chamberlain returned the seat and belts to Jackson's, but they were never reinstalled. When Oscar's truck was returned to his wife the next year, it was still disassembled and had no tires. 
Morton had already examined the blonde hair found on Oscar's white sweater without being able to match it to Donna, but there was renewed excitement about the hair reportedly found on the seatbelt. Morton asked that hair samples be collected from other possible passengers in Oscar's truck, his family members. Hensley collected those samples on June 17, 1976, just as jury selection was about to start, and TCSO Roadcap drove them to Oakland. Microscopic hair analysis has little scientific validity, but Morton's exam was exculpatory. He could see that the seatbelt hair could not have been Donna's. From Morton's notes of June 18th, Item number 91 is six and a half inches long, appears to be lighter than either Clifton or Richmond, and is quite similar to the light hair in number 94, showing no significant pigmentation, or rather fibrous texture to the cortex and no pitting. Number 94 was Oscar's daughter, Linda. More panic ensued, and Morton called the top ABO hair testing expert in the country and carefully ran three rounds on the hair samples using the prescribed method. Both the blonde hair from Oscar's sweater and the one from the seatbelt were type O, not Donna's A. Morton reported the findings to Blyer, but there is no record of the information being turned over to the defense until 2003. At about this point, Blyer seemed to realize that Bird had never checked on Oscar's alibi at all. Again, thinking it would be a slam dunk, and they were just checking off boxes, Bird finally went to Garden Street and interviewed Frank Thomas, the man who sold the freezer. This was on June 22, 1976, after the trial had already started. Thomas was a rock. He was positive it was 3.15 p.m., and the Petty John had known about his, quote, late comment to the freezer guys before he interviewed Thomas on December 31st. Of course, Chamberlain's interviews with Gerber, Trueblood, and Bill Irwin the next day were even more disastrous. Now, Bird had two witnesses who were positive they had seen and or spoken to Oscar at Bill Rose's house after 3.15. Irwin seemed helpful until Chamberlain checked with the hospital and discovered that Irwin had been in the city of Tulare at 2 p.m., not at the Thomas house. If Oscar's appellate attorney, Ted Isles, had taken the time to listen to Oscar, read the documents, and pay attention, he would have easily seen an avalanche of suppressed evidence, tainted and coerced witnesses, and shocking police and prosecutorial misconduct. Borbin's attorneys had just argued the exact same issues and won a new trial. Isles could have obtained a copy of that brief and just replaced a few names and dates. So who was Ted Isles, and why did he seem to want to keep Oscar in prison? Looking at Isles' history felt a lot like a repeat of researching Powell. They both really, really wanted to be judges. Isles ran for municipal court judge in Chico in 1970 against the incumbent, Wolford. His campaign was largely based on attacks on Wolford's age, 64, which Isles argued was too old to run for a six-year term. The candidates also disagreed on the concept of a public defender's office. From the Chico Enterprise Record, Tuesday, May 26, 1970. Judge Wolford says he favors a public defender program 
because the cost of the program has been estimated at about the same as that for court-appointed attorneys. He supports the plan if provided, quote, capable attorneys to give proper representation to those entitled thereto. Isles said, There are attorneys in the state of California who are ready to challenge the constitutionality of the public defender system on the grounds that it is discriminatory against the middle class who pay for it and who can't use it. When asked why he was running for the court post, Isles gave four reasons. I am eminently qualified. I want to live here. I want to get back where the action is. And it pays well. Isles lost that election with only 26% of the vote. In 1975, Isles sought appointment from Governor Brown to be Superior Court Judge in Placer County. He was not appointed, and another disappointed candidate said of Brown, The appointments appear to be from the minorities, women, people who are involved in legal aid, ACLU, totally different from the usual appointment. Isles then ran against an incumbent for Sacramento Superior Court Judge in 1976. He got only 34% of the vote that year. He then took the position with the newly formed State Public Defender's Office. His sudden interest in public defense work appeared to be wholly motivated by his desire to win favor with Governor Brown and a future judicial appointment. Another issue that Isles rejected in Clifton's appeal was the trial court's decision not to move the trial to another county due to extreme pretrial press coverage. Oscar argued with Isles and pointed out all of the stories about the charges against him for rape and sodomy, which were dropped because the crimes literally didn't happen. Powell had intentionally corrupted the local jury pool with highly prejudicial false information. Isles said it didn't matter. This is just laughable. Denial of a change of venue motion was an easy issue to win on appeal, and we have never seen a more clear-cut case of a tainted jury pool. Again, this was Oscar's one and only chance to make that argument, and Isles ignored it. On May 11, 1977, Ted Isles wrote to Oscar, To spare you future disappointment, and to save you needless effort, I must repeat what Mr. Goodpaster has told you, and remind you that an appeal is not a new trial. The trial judge and jury no longer have anything to do with how your appeal turns out. The appellate court will not look at any evidence that was not introduced at your trial or was not otherwise brought to the attention of the superior court, regardless of whether you would have liked to see other investigations made or other facts placed in evidence. The appellate court would certainly say that Mr. Donahue represented you diligently. So on this appeal, we have to work with the record we already have not with some different record that you would like us to assemble using new evidence. We'll send you a copy of the brief when we file it. We will be unable to send you the transcript until the appeal is over, since we will be using it until then. When your appeal is over, we can better advise you to the time which you must serve if you do not win a new trial. May 17, 1977, from Isles. When you receive your copy of the brief from us, you should remember that the jurors made a choice as to which witnesses they wanted to believe, and the jurors also made a choice as to what they would infer from the evidence. The appellate court will not make those choices over again, and therefore, the attorneys in this office cannot ask the appellate court to decide that the jury was wrong. 
You must leave strategy decisions to us. Nothing you have sent us and nothing you have described in your letters would have any effect on your appeal, nor would it provide you with any basis to successfully petition for habeas corpus. We could not obtain a court order now to gain the evidence you are seeking. What your trial judge previously ordered to be given to Mr. Donahue is of no importance now, since no claim was made at trial that the discovery order was violated. The record does not show that the district attorney acted in bad faith. The record does not show that law enforcement officers were in the lineup. Isles was wrong. Everyone in the lineup was a police officer except Oscar. May 24 from Isles. No grounds for appeal exists in the fact that the trial judge allowed the jurors to go home for the weekend after Mr. Donahue rested your case on Friday, July 9th. No objection was made on your behalf when the jurors were allowed to go home. No sufficient basis for an objection appears in the record. The record does not support your allegation that jurors looked at newspapers that weekend. Even if the jurors saw articles about you then, it is much too late now to raise the point for the first time. Isles is wrong again. The Visalia Times Delta ran a huge story that week about the 1965 conviction, which the judge ruled they were not to consider. Isles should have argued that the jury considered inadmissible evidence or that Donahue was ineffective for not having objected sooner. The photographs of footprints, which were exhibits at your trial, will be available to you or your trial attorney if you win your appeal and have a new trial. At that time, you can obtain discovery of the San Diego Laboratory report concerning the footprints, if such a report exists. Mr. Donahue's letter to you of May 6, 1977 states that he did not receive such a report and that his information was that the San Diego Laboratory could not identify the footprints. I know of no way you can personally obtain copies of the photographs at the present time or of any such laboratory report. It is premature for you to be concerned about them now. So, Isles admitted that the DA suppressed exculpatory evidence, a clear Brady violation, and yet refused to get a copy of Harris's report for himself. Since your appeal would not be served by it, we have no basis to request the appellate court for an order allowing us to copy the photographs for your personal examination. Even assuming that the San Diego report exists, it has no relevance to your appeal, and because of the other evidence received at your trial, your conviction could not successfully be attacked in habeas corpus proceedings even if we speculate that the San Diego Laboratory positively identified the footprints as being someone else's. That is so outrageous. Isles just told Oscar that it didn't matter if the expert lab identified the critical heel print as belonging to someone else and Powell hid it from the defense and jury. August 17 from Isles. To save you time and effort insofar as your appeal is concerned, let me again remind you of some things. As I have previously told you, there is no point in your writing to us about your version of the facts. The appellate court is not interested in what you think the facts are. The jury believed the prosecutor's evidence, and the jury decided what the facts are. The appellate court is only interested in questions of law. The appellate court will not re-decide the facts. Months ago, I checked all the legal points you have mentioned, and... 
as I previously wrote you, none of them would be successful. I am vitally interested in your case and have devoted an extraordinary amount of time to it. You must accept the fact that this is an uphill battle. Based on the prosecutor's evidence, the appellate court is not going to look kindly on your case. I cannot guarantee that my approach will win, but I can guarantee that your approach would certainly lose. August 26. You mentioned a point about inflammatory photographs. I reviewed that point a long time ago and decided not to mention it because it is a sure loser. It is a mistake to water down a brief with arguments which are sure losers. I would be doing you a disservice if I let you be the one who decided what goes in your briefs. It is too late now to argue that the jury should have believed you and your witnesses. The jury made its choice and we are stuck with it. The appellate court is stuck with it too because the prosecutor introduced evidence which supports the verdict. It is too late now to put in new evidence of the type your letters have mentioned. If you win your appeal, your trial attorney will decide whether to use the new evidence at your second trial. I will have to keep the reporter's transcript and clerk's transcript until the appeal is over, including the time it takes for any petitions and hearings in higher appellate courts. The office cannot copy the hundreds of pages for which you have asked. Since you cannot put in new evidence now, there is no reason why you need so many pages at this time. Now was the only time Oscar was allowed to argue that material and relevant evidence was suppressed at trial and that Powell's so-called evidence was not what it seemed. Presenting lies and hiding the truth is misconduct. September 13th from Isles. The venue point was not raised because it has no merit. Adverse publicity is not enough in itself to require a change of venue. Regardless of your willingness to pay for copies of the transcripts, please understand that this office cannot ask its secretaries to spend their time photocopying records as long as yours. Powell making false rape and sodomy charges and lying to the press about the evidence went far beyond, quote, adverse publicity and it was intentional and done in bad faith. March 1st, 1978, from Isles. I have written you over and over again that an appeal is not a new trial. I have told you over and over again that the appellate court will not re-decide what the evidence reasonably shows. The jury has already done that. The jury already decided what interpretation to place on the evidence. Despite my many letters to you, you have sent me letter after letter in which you argue your version of what the evidence shows. Such arguments are not relevant on your appeal. Your unending discussions of the evidence have forced me to conclude that either you do not read my letters or else you do not understand them. I have no reason to think that a personal interview with you would be any different. Because of the shocking nature of the crime charged, and because the jury believed the DA's evidence, the appellate court will be very reluctant to accept the Miranda argument I have raised. However, you can be sure that you would have no chance of winning with any of the points of law you have raised, or with any of the other points that I examined and found to have no merit. Putting aside the condescending rudeness and terrible legal hot takes there, we still don't understand why Donna's murder is always portrayed as so much more shocking than Jennifer's. 
Jennifer didn't do anything risky. She was walking in a safe area to meet friends for the homecoming game. We think a lot about the fact that she must have known she was in trouble and been terrified the minute her kidnapper's car hit the freeway. She was alone with him in the cold, dark night in a place where she'd never been. Isn't it shocking that she was naked with her hands bound with her own bra? Donna's murder was horrible, but so are all murders of young girls. That surely doesn't mean that the defendant can't argue the truth of the facts on appeal. In fact, it should be just the opposite. Claims of actual innocence in a circumstantial case should get extra attention if the crime is particularly violent and the real offender may have walked free to kill again. The court should also acknowledge that notorious cases in small towns often lead to wrongful convictions because the elected sheriffs and DAs are under tremendous political pressure to solve the case and send someone, anyone, to prison. March 30th, 1978, from Isles. I will have to keep the transcripts of your trial until I have exhausted all of the steps and your appeal is over. When your appeal is over, I will send you all of the transcripts. Sheriff's reports have nothing whatsoever to do with your appeal if those reports were not offered or placed in evidence before the trial judge or jury. As I have informed you many times, the appellate court is not a new jury, so there is no purpose to be served by using part of your brief to argue what the evidence did or did not show. June 13, 1978. My secretary mailed all of the transcripts to you yesterday. Insofar as my legal research is concerned, you will have to settle for what is in the filed briefs, of which you have received copies. Your appeal in the state courts is over. If you personally wish to file a petition for cert with the U.S. Supreme Court, it must be done within 90 days after May 18, 1978. Generally speaking, issues which were or could have been raised on appeal will not be considered on a petition for writ of habeas corpus. However, my advice is that you raise them anyway just to be on the safe side and let the court say no. Contrary to what many jailhouse lawyers and members of the public think, appellate courts do not reverse murder convictions on, quote, technicalities, where the DA introduced substantial evidence of guilt, which the jury believed. From this time on, you will have to rely on legal sources other than the state public defender, since our role in your case is finished. I have always felt that the evidence against you was too pat to be true. Good luck to you. The circular argument here is mind-numbing. Isles told Oscar that his options for further appeal were limited because Isles himself refused to argue any of the issues to the state courts. So now Oscar was barred from raising all of the constitutional violations he had asked Isles to include in his brief, precisely because Isles wouldn't argue them. Talk about a no-win situation for Oscar. Isles had the power to kill Oscar's chance for a new trial, and he did it. You can't win an appeal if you don't even ask the court to consider the issues, and Isles plainly refused to do so. Rereading all of Ted Isles' letters to Oscar from 1977 to 78 is truly sickening. We've talked with people who worked with Isles at the time, and they described him as a forced hire, 
someone who was pro-police and prosecution and brought in to make the public defender's office look balanced, not too liberal. That sounds like someone else who joined their office at the same time, Harvey Zoll. What do we think that Zoll told Isles about Oscar, the case, Powell, and the evidence that Oscar was guilty, the evidence was overwhelming, and that Isles should make sure that Oscar didn't get a new trial? Isles refused to give Oscar a copy of the trial transcript and told him repeatedly to stop writing to him, stop asking for things, and stop suggesting issues for the appeal. Isles insisted that Donahue had done an excellent job and refused to argue ineffective assistance of counsel, even when told about the written threats Donahue had received. Isles could have filled the appeal with nothing but Powell's misconduct, something that had just given Bourbon a new trial, but Isles couldn't seem to find any wrongdoing. Isles was rude, dismissive, incompetent, and totally wasted Oscar's direct appeal and his best chance at overturning his conviction. We have been in Ted Isles' position, working as public defenders, handling complex criminal appeals. We have won release and charge dismissal based on one tiny error by the judge that amounted to abuse of discretion. We fully understand the standard for both direct state appeals and federal habeas. Ted Isles was either a terrible attorney or he intentionally ruined Oscar's chance at a new trial. There is no way to justify his dismissive and condescending tone or how shockingly wrong all his legal opinions were. If Donahue didn't preserve an issue for appeal through objection, that's ineffective assistance of counsel. Isles treated Oscar's claims of suppressed exculpatory evidence as if he'd never heard of Brady or the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Imagine sitting on death row and finding out that your attorney never received any reports from the forensic lab that tested all of the evidence and that the experts hired to examine the heel print and the leaf from your truck told the DA that they didn't match you. When confronted, your trial attorney just shrugs and your appeal counsel berates you for wasting his valuable time. Now imagine that it happens over and over with every tainted witness, every tire track, and every piece of physical evidence. Of course witnesses can pick you out of a lineup if police show them your photo first. The jury will never find evidence that points to another suspect if neither the DA nor your own attorney presents it in court. Under our legal system, Donahue had the power to let Oscar sit in jail with no information about the case against him while messing up every aspect of the defense. That left Oscar with two choices for his state appeals. Argue that TCSO and DA Powell had violated his due process rights by hiding, planting, and lying about evidence, pressuring witnesses to make false identifications, presenting incorrect, misleading, and non-expert forensic testimony, and tainting the jury with knowingly false statements. Or claim ineffective assistance of counsel based on the threats Donahue received, the lack of proper diligence on the case, and failure to preserve all of the due process violations through proper objections on the record. Ted Isles refused both options and tried to gaslight Oscar. All of this is the real truth of the fairness of our justice system. 
trials are meant to find the defendant guilty and generate headlines for the DA's re-election, and appeals are designed to make sure those convictions are maintained. Maybe we should try to elect DAs who believe that justice is about fairness and truth, not just winning convictions. By September 12, 1978, Oscar had won on having his death sentence converted to life without parole, but he was representing himself again, and he turned back to Donahue for help. Now, what I need from you is some advice as to how I can obtain all lab reports so that I can have lab tests run on them. I'm talking about all. The shirt with blood and hair and footprints tire prints, and then everything that was put in as evidence. I also would like a report about the paint test that was run on my pickup with the bike. The court had ordered them to give you all reports. Also one from San Diego by Mr. Harris of the shoes or boot or whatever it was. This report had to be helpful to me or they would have gave you a copy and had him in the trial. There was a report from Dr. John Strother of the University of California. He compared the leaf on the mirror with some of the grove where the body was found. These reports should have been given to you before my trial. The following things I do need. The reports from Dr. John Strother. The reports from Mr. Harris of San Diego on the footprints. The report from whoever it was made the test on the paint the first time and the one from Mr. Morton. Copies of the pictures of the footprints, all of them, not just the one put in evidence, all from 34 to 40. These also should have been given to you. And I also would like to have each and every picture that was put into evidence or copies of them. Now, Mr. Donahue, you could help me get a new trial if you would. You know more about my case than anyone else. I know a lot was left out some that you did not see. I hope you understand, and if you know any way that might help, let me know. As soon as I receive these things, I'll have a lab go over them. Can you tell me one that will not lie about their tests, no matter if it is good for me or bad? All I ask for is what is true. Please, help me get these reports so I can file a writ to prove that they did withhold evidence that could have helped me. Thank you for your time. All of the evidence that Oscar wanted to have tested had been destroyed more than a year earlier, a fact that was hidden from him until 2003. ADA Ron Coolyard knew as early as 1985, but did not tell Oscar or his defense attorneys. Oscar wasn't afraid of the truth but TCSO and the Tulare DA sure are. Let's just call this what it is, an illegal cover-up, a felony. On September 21, 1980, Oscar wrote his last letter to Donahue. Just a line to inform you that after almost five years, I now have the eyewitnesses that did, in fact, place me on Garden Street at 3.30 p.m., on December 26, 1975. They even gave statements to the sheriff's officers. Why were their statements withheld from my trial? You know as well as I do that the prosecution did in fact know about them. 
One of these witnesses even went to the trial courtroom to testify on my behalf, but was told they did not need them. I'm filing a motion for a new trial on the grounds of withheld evidence known to the prosecution, but not made available to me. Everyone may have given up, but I'll never give up until I find out just who set me up. I now have nine new statements that will help me get a new trial. I also have evidence that should have come out at my trial. If you know of any way that you can help me get a new trial due to the fact that the prosecution withheld these eyewitnesses, please let me know since I've got the hearing without the help of any attorney. Donahue's reply on September 23, 1980. Thank you for your letter. I am happy to hear that you state you are making some progress in your appeal motions. I do not know of any witnesses withheld by the prosecution during your trial. Good luck to you in the future. Less than eight months later, Donahue was dead, and whatever truths he knew died with him on that isolated canal bank. Mm -hmm.